It's a crazy world out there. And this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.com. And now for today's episode. Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope all of you are doing well. I hope those of you who were caught by this unusual cold snap in the center of the country, maybe had lost power, uh, are getting back to normal. Everything is going well for you. But thanks for tuning in regardless. Uh, My conservatism series has been going on for a while, and you know I'm thinking it's about time to wind it down and move on to some other topics. I mean, I could just keep going and going and going. For example, I could do an entire episode about the realities of private equity, which are far different from what you hear from a lot of conservatives. For example, just this month, a new National Bureau of Economic Research paper came out called Does Private Equity Investment in Healthcare Benefit Patients? Evidence from Nursing Homes. I'll throw a link in the show notes if you want to look at it. Here's a quote from that study. Our estimates show that private equity ownership increases the short-term mortality of Medicare patients by 10%, implying 20,150 lives lost due to private equity ownership over our 12-year sample period. This is accompanied by declines in other major measures of patient well-being, such as lower mobility, while taxpayer spending per patient episode increased by 11%. We observe operational changes that help to explain these effects, including declines in nursing staff and compliance with standards. And finally, we document a systematic shift in operating costs post-acquisition towards non-patient care items such as monitoring fees, interest, and lease payments, unquote. Right, so this should not surprise you. Uh, By now, I mentioned the Indiana nursing home scam a few episodes back, for example. So private equity is far from the only scam going on uh, in, in the nursing home business. But if you want to know more about private equity, if you want to dig into that, uh, there's a great book called Glass House, The 1% Economy and the Shattering of the All-American Town by Brian Alexander. Again, I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to read it. It talks all about private equity. Uh, It really talks about the decline of Lancaster, Ohio, through the lens of private equity and the P.E. machinations around the buying and selling of its largest local employer, a glass company called Anchor Hawking. I'll leave that for your own research. Again, there's just so many things we could go into and see that the reality of how these things function in the modern economy is far different from the very simplistic textbook examples that we get or, you know, the the very simplistic uh, you know, kind of libertarianoid way uh, that uh, the Republicans speak about it. But I'll leave, uh, I'll leave that to your own research. Now, I started off my conservatism series noting that the policy preferences of the conservative elite, they're, they're very different from that of the average Republican voter. And we see that in how what the very first thing Congress passes after Trump's election is a tax cut, which was basically nowhere in Trump's campaign agenda, which was mostly about walls, trade, wars, and things like that. And we saw many prominent conservatives heap abuse on the Republican Party's own voters for having the gall to vote for Trump. 
And there was just a, you know, an article out recently talking about a significant number of former Bush officials are making noises about starting their own party. Uh, Ross Douthat all but admitted that a small conservative elite would whip up populist rage in order to win elections that would give them the power to implement their own agenda. Uh, it's like there's a club, and as in George Carlin's uh, famous quip, you ain't in it. And if it looks like other people are getting leadership in the club, they just take their ball and go home. I also talked about the history of conservatism. I show that it was a post-war phenomenon with no real organic connection to the country's past, the founding, Burke, etc. And I also show that social conservatives, as we understand the term today, were not really part of the conservative movement originally and joined much, much, much later. I also discussed the social origins of conservatism and how the movement was and continues to be heavily led by Catholics and Jews with relatively few evangelicals in movement-shaping positions. In fact, evangelicals joined the Republican Party fairly late, not until the 1970s and the 80s. The first evangelical president was Jimmy Carter, and I think it was in 1976 that Time Magazine uh, called it the Year of the Evangelical. Uh, as recently as 1982, uh, evangelicals had a plurality still identifying as Democrats. And from the time they in really joined conservatism until today, evangelicals have occupied a very junior position within the movement. I also talked about how oil money was key to funding conservatism initially and how so many of the economic disputes between liberals and conservatives over the years mirrored economic splits within the oil business between the interest of the oil majors and the independents or wildcatters that were more aligned with conservative politics. In fact, some conservatives had personal ties to the oil industry and had personal grievances that drove their politics. Fred Koch, for example, the, the dad of the Koch brothers that we know today, he was an oil refining guy who the majors were constantly trying to drive out of the business, right? So he had grudges, and, you know, frankly, he had reason to. They were, they were valid grudges. You know, but I think the key is that there were personal experiences behind some of these politics. Oh, and again, I'll just repeat, William F. Buckley Jr.'s money came from oil. His dad made a lot of money in the oil business, and that's where his wealth came from. Then I, I shifted to talk a little bit about the neocons, who are sort of treated as boogeymen today. And while not without their flaws, and, and certainly willing to play hardball to take over conservatism, uh, which they did, uh, they accomplished a lot of good in cleaning up New York, etc., and I think they get something of a bum rap. Too much blame is pushed on that, uh, pushed on them. I also had an episode where I refuted the notion that think tankers are really just shills for donors. Now, money clearly has a big influence in politics, but at least in the think tanks I have personal experience with, the influence of money is really more about setting the boundaries of acceptable discourse rather than dictating the output, right? So there's, there's some things you really can't say, right? If you're a conservative saying tax the rich, you're probably not going to work at your think tank very long. But within those parameters, uh, you know, there's a lot of freedom, I think. You know, when I worked for a conservative think tank for five years, nobody ever told me what to say, certainly not any donors. And then, uh, again, last week I pushed back on some of this libertarianoid thinking about, about free trade, which, again, free trade is good, but but what kind, what's really happening out there and how should it actually be set up and managed is something that's not really discussed at, at any serious level in conservative circles. And again, I could go on and on and on, but I want to start moving from this topic, and I want to kind of wrap up 
with a call to evangelicals. And I, I know there are a lot of you on this podcast who are, who are not evangelicals. I know a lot of you who are not uh, d- uh, even Republicans. But this is one for the evangelicals who are sort of conservatives. And just say, you know, we need to rethink our relationship with conservatism and the Republican parties. And, you know, pretty much evangelicals today make up the largest and most reliable voting block for the Republican Party. But in return for that, right, what what are evangelicals getting? I mean, I would argue not nearly enough in return for being the largest and most reliable voting block. And let's just look at this from a little bit of a different angle to give you a, a different perspective that might help illuminate this to you. So if you're a conservative uh, Republican, just ask yourself, what do you think about the very high loyalty of blacks to the Democratic Party? So black voters vote between 80 and 90% Democrat. They're the most reliable voting block for the Dems. The Dems literally cannot win without black votes. So what do you think about this situation? Well, I don't know exactly what you think, but my guess is it goes something like this. Can't they see that they're just being exploited by the Democratic Party? I mean, look at the conditions of the black community in places where the Democrats have total control, like Chicago and Illinois. Blacks are fleeing Chicago and Illinois because the conditions are so bad there. All the money is going into fancy amenities for downtown businesses or rich white people like the Chicago Riverwalk. In fact, all these so-called rich progressive cities, they all have been running their black populations out. San Francisco, L.A., D.C. If anything, Democrats are the real racists. Yes, there are a few prominent wealthy blacks or black politicians or activists like Al Sharpton who've gotten great positions, but the actual bulk of the black community has gotten almost nothing from the Democrat but a bunch of rhetoric that they use to fire them up to go out and vote every election day, uh, but then they don't do much afterwards. And in fact, not doing anything for black voters is one of the ways that the Democrats keep them perpetually angry so they can turn out that vote whenever they need it. So my guess is it probably goes something like that, doesn't it? That's probably how you think about that. Well, guess what? Let's apply the projection filter to this, right? You know, in kind of the Freudian sense. That is to say, the things we see in others, let's see what they say about ourselves. Let's turn it around. And if you are a conservative evangelical, you just described yourself and your place in the Republican Party, right? That is exactly the situation with you. You vote 80% Republican. You've got a few politicians and pundits out there. You get fired up about campaign rhetoric, right? Every four years about abortion and judges. And guess what? The Republican Party has every incentive to keep you aggrieved so they can keep running that same playbook year after year to make you vote for them the next time. So that's you. You just described yourself when you thought you were describing them. Now, you'd probably say, well, what else are we going to do? Vote Democrat? I mean, they support abortion and all kinds of other horrible stuff. Well, they're sure not going to give us anything, are they? Well, you know, that may be true. But oh, by the way, I, you know, I'd argue it's also true the Republicans aren't going to give black voters anything either. You'll note that the Republican pitch to blacks almost never involves promising to do anything that black voters actually want, but is really more about simply trying to convince voters that what the conservative elite already wants to do for themselves is somehow also good for blacks. Well, no wonder that doesn't work, right? That pitch that, oh, you know, the Democrats care about the poor, all this stuff. Does, does that work on you? 
Probably not. So your pitch to blacks is probably not working either. Give them some credit, right? Um, give them some credit as well. And so, you know, this is one reason I say, you know, the Republican Party has to be destroyed. Now, that's not necessarily a literal statement, right? The institution itself uh, can survive, although it doesn't have to. You know, the Whig Party didn't survive, uh, and that was not a tragedy for the country. I mean, out of that came the Republican Party and the end of slavery, which I don't think is is a bad outcome. But certainly there needs to be a reformulation of uh, conservative and Republican Party principles, policies, its theories of change, etc. And frankly, evangelicals need to insist on change. You know, they, and they need to be willing to stay home and stop contributing money if things don't change, right? I'm personally not voting for any of these clowns. That's what I'm doing. And again, it's a free country, and I think everyone should vote their conscience, right? So I would encourage you to vote for the person that you think is the right person. But at the end of the day, right, you've got to assess what you're getting in return for your vote. And right now for the conservative evangelical, the answer is not much. And again, I got some pushback on that. You know, there's some things uh, that that have gotten it, but not not that much in return for being this, you know, biggest and most loyal voting bloc. In fact, I don't even think the conservatives are giving you a true and complete picture of where conservatism even came from and its history and all that stuff. And I'm guessing a lot of the stuff that I told you there is stuff you didn't even know, right? You didn't hear it from them. You had to hear it from me. So listen to the series. Do your own further research. You know, I gave plenty of reading uh, in the show notes for people who want to do that. And just update your own mental model about conservatism and the Republican Party and think about whether the current deal with them is a good deal or the right deal and act accordingly. Again, you're all adults and you can make your own decisions. I'm just giving you the the info and you can decide what to do with it. So this is pretty much the end of my series. Next week, I'm going to have a, uh, you know, one kind of call it a postscript episode where I'm going to talk about something that I noticed about conservatives while I was reading Nash's book, that canonical history of conservatism. Uh, and, I think it really ought to inform how we act today because I think we often repeat one of the failed patterns uh, that conservatives did back in, in the 50s and the 60s, et cetera. You know, some things haven't changed. We need to rethink some of that. So until then, take care. And if you've not already, again, please do not forget to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not a subscriber to the, to the uh, Masculinist newsletter, uh, go to themasculinist.com. And sign up today, and I will see you all next week.